Welcome, welcome, welcome to OTC's very own uh, Oh That's Cool podcast, uh, the podcast we make right here at OTC, getting to know um, all the great people that work here. We used to be able to say that this was OTC's only podcast. However, uh, we have a great new addition. Um, Jeffrey Johnson is now, uh, he is a, a instructor over at Electronic Media Production. Uh, he has started his own podcast with his family called The Rock Farm. It's amazing. He's had guests such as Phil, uh, Phil Forrester, um, who teaches music here on campus. Uh, it is fantastic. If you get a chance to listen to it, you can find it at therockfarm.libsyn.com. Uh, and uh, we, we, we would love for you to support him. And we would love uh, to support you in uh, starting your own podcast. So if that's something you're interested in, make sure to get a hold of us um, as we continue to uh, uh, build our podcast community here at OTC. Uh, I, of course, am, am Jared Durden. And with me, as always, is Andrew Crocker. I am, I am so glad that you gave a shout out to Mr. Johnson. Have he, you heard it? I have heard both episodes. And first of all, as you can expect from somebody... In his position, the sound quality is fantastic. His production preparation is fantastic. He himself, as you know, is a great guy. He was instrumental in helping us set up this podcast. So, yeah, absolutely. If you first of all, let me just clarify what Jared said. If you need to get a podcast set up, he's the guy you talk to. <laughs> but if you want to give get a shout out and get a little love, we're definitely the people you talk to because we I any OTC podcast. I love the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, Jared, how you doing? I'm great. Uh, the uh, are you feeling now that you're on campus? I know you're not on campus every day. Are you really just on campus for the podcast? No, I'm I'm teaching uh, a CETA section, so I'm here Monday through Thursday. Is the is the campus feeling safe? Campus is safe. Uh, in the summer, we have uh, such an increase in online um, that we are just not seeing as many students on campus, which at this time is is um, functional, right? And so. Um, it, it, it's felt safe. Um, I, of course, feel safer. I've been vaccinated uh, and um, have been encouraging students and reminding them of how important that is mm -hmm. as well. Which reminds me, uh, we talked last time um, about the Netflix documentary uh, Behind the Curve. Yes. Uh, and so in this week's... Uh, uh, Netflix I documentary up, about flat earthers. About flat earthers, yes. right? So in this week's uh, 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 I Messed Up, uh, I need to refer back to... Um, we talked about uh, a physicist who discussed uh, how important it was to be good ambassadors of science and how um, rhetoric can affect um, people's uh, uh, mistrust in science. And so... Uh, the physicist that spoke, he's from Cal State, his name's Lamar Glover. He does his work on dismantling the scientific superiority complex. Uh, so check out Lamar's work. Check out uh, uh, the Netflix documentary Behind the Curve. Fascinating. Yes. And really relevant to the conversation. A really great conversation that I hope we have again sometime with Daniel Oganyemi. That was a really, Absolutely. Really, yeah. From episode three, if you're keeping track, this is episode four. It is, a matter of fact, yeah. That's this is our fourth anniversary. Would you remember what the anniversary, each anniversary has a nickname? Do you know what the fourth anniversary is? I don't. I know yeah. in wedding anniversaries, it's flowers and fruit. Well, there you go. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah flowers okay. and fruit. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I should have brought flowers and or fruit. I apologize. We are both... Flowerless and fruitless. I got Carly a uh, what is that called? 
a dragon fruit and this giant melon thing that was like, <laughs> oh, oh man, I can't. Remember. So this is gonna be next week's. I messed up. Okay. I, I got a bunch of exotic fruits. That okay. I thought were interesting. A dragon fruit. Dragon fruit. It's really pretty. It's pretty tasty. It's kind of like a kiwi without as much kick. Mm-hmm. Okay. It might just not have been as ripe enough. All right. So, anyways, we're uh, 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 here today with with a brand new guest um, and. This was a question that kind of that you had brought up, Andrew, and you suggested, of course, um, we bring Matthew Simpson, who is a chief, is our chief research and government affairs officer here at OTC. And what is the the question that that you had, the topic that you were interested? Well, in? I had uh, back when we were kind of kicking ideas around. I'm always jutting ideas to you, and the idea that fascinated me recently, since we work at a community college, we currently have a president married to a community college instructor. By the way, president of the United States, not. That's the kind of president I'm talking about here. And he has unveiled plans for potentially achieving tuition-free community college. I wanted to talk about what on earth that would even look like, whether that's wise, although or, you know, obviously we're just looking for information more than we are judgments. Uh, and so I was like, if I could find one person on campus, very top of my list would be Mr. Matt Simpson. First of all, say, hey, sir. Hey, well, thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited uh, to join you. Well, and we you buried the lead a bit. Because you are, in fact, the chief. Re Can you give us just a snippet? What is that position, the chief research officer? So it's you know, kind of something different every day. But uh, you know, the, on the research side, the the big part is uh, doing all the government compliance reports. Uh, there are a ton of those, and and a lot of research offices kind of that's all they're able to do. We're fortunate at OTC that we also take a very data driven approach uh, to decisions. So we don't only have to do the required stuff. We also get to do research on you know what serves our students best in the classroom and the other supports we provide, what serves our community best. And that research is then used by decision makers to make sure that we're doing the best thing possible for our students and for our community. So there are different questions every day, but we love getting the answer to them. You know, on the governmental affairs side, uh, you know, just working with our you know, community partners working with the different levels of state government, uh, of government that we interact with um, and, uh, and making sure that we're, you know, presenting OTC story and, and doing our best to get the resources to, to serve our students. To serve our we have been so gifted the first four episodes to bring in people who are all fascinating in their own rights for their own reasons. What makes you interesting in addition to all the I've seen firsthand the crazy amount of research you have to conduct. But on top of that, you also uh, are the founder of Five Pound Apparel, which uh, many of our I coworkers know that. I know many of our coworkers didn't know that. I have like, several of your T-shirts. <laughs> I'm very glad. To, I always love seeing the T-shirts around town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've got a whole, uh, too many probably if you ask my wife, but I've got a whole uh, drawer <laughs> in my cabinet of them. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So I co-founded, uh, you know, co founded Apparel with, uh, oh, that's right, uh, with uh, my brother, uh, Brian. Um, you know, we sold that uh, several years back. He's moved on. He's doing the big blanket company now. Um, but uh, that was, you know, getting to be a, a part of. It was really his thing, but getting to be a part of it and, you know, see the process of starting a business and, and see what impact it can make on the community and the lasting impact and people still wearing the shirts and, and the charities were able to help. Um, that That's a pretty rewarding experience. And that, which transitions us perfectly into the other thing that's uh, many things interesting about you. But for me specifically, you also serve on the city council. You are now in your second term. Was your first term a full term? Uh, what? How? Uh... So, yeah, it's a it's a. 
more complicated uh, path on mine than, than some others, but I was appointed, I was appointed to city council, uh, to fill a vacancy, uh, back in the spring of, of 2018. Uh, and then was, um, the way appointments work, you then, you then face election for the remainder of your first term. So then I was elected in, uh, April 2019 for the remainder of my first term, uh, and then, uh, reelected, uh, again in, in April, uh, 2021 this year, uh, for, uh, for my, Second term or first full term, however you want to. Okay, and, at, and yeah. I mean, Matt, you and I are really going to have to try here not to derail this thing because you and I could, <laughs> I could, I could. <laughs> we could get into the yes. But, we so there's that this easily. great mixture though in terms of of a great guest because on my side of the fence, the data driven uh, uh, research, ah, oh, speaking my language, on your side of the <laughs> fence, the the, the political uh, contributions, and and so uh, mm. I think we might. Both need to be careful about not derailing. Oh, it could be. It might have to have like this. Might have to be a trilogy. We have. Uh, we, we there for anybody not for anybody who doesn't know. City council uh, for Springfield, Missouri has nine seats. The first seat is of course the mayor representing the entire city. Four of those seats are what we call general seats. All four of those seats each represent the entire city, and then the last four seats split Springfield up into fourths. Which of those forts do you represent, sir? Uh, so I am zone four, uh, which is southeast Springfield. Uh, for the most part, that's east of Campbell, south of Sunshine, do pick up some around the Phelps Grove Park area, north of Sunshine, north of Sunshine as well. Uh, and so that that balance of representation of you've got people who primarily are able to take the citywide perspective, and you've got people like me who are able to, to work more closely with specific areas and represent not only the citywide perspective, but the, the concerns of, uh, of the specific part of town, um, I think provides a pretty good balance. Um, you know, the, the other thing for me is that, you know, none of us signed up to council expecting to, to, to happen to deal with the global pandemic. Nobody, I think any of us in, in any area expected to have to deal with that. But, you know, zone four also contains the city's major hospitals. You know, we've got Cox, uh, we have Mercy, um, we have uh, Burl located there. Uh, and so that has been a, a a particularly important perspective to represent uh, throughout this pandemic as, as we're trying to support their their response and, and their work to save lives. Um, it, what verb would you use? Do you enjoy working on city council? I don't know if that's the appropriate verb to use right now, given the challenges we face as a community. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would. Yeah, I would definitely say enjoy is not the the right verb for uh, since this, since last March, um, but it's still. Yeah, as as difficult as it is, and, and as negative as it is, and uh, as it can get in terms of the rhetoric, and um, and as overwhelming as it can get with some of these issues, I think rewarding is maybe the better verb to use still, because we still do have a chance, uh, despite despite all that stuff, we do still do have a chance to to make a difference and and make positive impacts for our community. Uh, and we don't get to choose the circumstances we face, um, but being in that position, we can have a say in how we respond to them. Um, and as long as there's still that chance to help people, uh, then it's still rewarding no matter how, how hard it gets. Uh, Councilman Simpson, I was fortunate enough to interview Kendra Findlay. I'm not, I'm going to get her position wrong, but she's head of epidemiology and, and, and at Green County Health uh, Office. And she had said that Green County is one of the 10 worst counties in America in terms of COVID rates right now. We're in the biggest city in Greene County. You're a city council member for it. What's our problem? Uh, the, the, you know, the issue at this point is, is vaccination rates. Um, you know, the, the, the evidence is, is very clear that vaccines are the best way to protect not only yourself, but uh, reaching 
adequate community vac vaccination levels as, as a way to protect the community and avoid us having to go through these spikes every time that there is a there is a variant. Um, you know, we heartbreakingly kind of are on the, the tip of the spear with the, the, the Delta variant with it coming into our region and spreading across our region. And, and what we're seeing right now is it's kind of spreading further across the state and, and you're going to see communities with similar lower vaccination levels, unfortunately, I think go through the same thing that, that, that we're going through. We just happened to, to be the region that kind of went through it first. Um, and you know, that's the, you know, that, it's preventable that that that's the part that that heartbreaking that I, I, is heartbreaking because we don't have to be going through this uh and and that you know i i hope that i hope that the takeaway from people will be that you know you don't want to go through this yourself if you don't want our community to go through this again uh when we move through the greek alphabet um the way to prevent that is 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 getting the vaccination is that why it's called the delta variation the or what variant is variant, because yeah. of the Greek alphabet. Um, my my as I've mentioned before on this podcast and to you, as you know already, my wife is in healthcare. She's fantastic, uh, and she has to deal with the visceral misery of it on a day to day basis. You are looking at it from a ten thousand foot view. If we could hop in that metaphorical helicopter, actually, let's just approach this from a research thing because that kind of that tends to be your strength. Why? Why is our vac vaccination rate, according to your research, so puny in this city? Well, it's um, that, that that's a good question. I I I wish I knew the the full answer to that um, because I think that would would help us kind of you know best com communicate and reach people. Um, you know, I think if you look and see um, you know, the vac the vaccination rates across. Missouri overall, but particularly Southwest Missouri, are, are very low. Um, you know, Spring, Springfield is actually much higher uh, than than the rest of the region. But you know, viruses don't respect political boundaries, uh, and so um, you know, when we're when we're dealing with things like the the Delta spike that we're dealing with now, uh, it's not a city by city thing. It's you know, you live in a region and you are affected by everyone else's decisions within that that broader region. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I think that for a lot of times talking to people comes down to uh, distrust, comes down to politics, which is extremely unfortunate because this, this isn't a political issue. It, it's, a, it's a medical issue. It's a scientific issue, and politics shouldn't kind of enter into it. But, you know, you do across the country see a very high level of correlation um, between um, um, partisan voting uh, and uh, the, the rates of vaccination. Um, and there's no reason for that. There should be no reason for that. Um, but unfortunately, it has become political. And so I think it's for people having to hear, you know, maybe getting misinformation, um, you know, viewing as a political issue and really needing to hear from somebody who is a trusted individual for them, um, for them to, to maybe go to talk to a doctor or go find out about the, the science behind the vaccine. Is it also true that the numbers are showing, uh, so nationally, there, it, it breaks down by age as well, um, and, and looking at nationally, over 60 seems to be a higher rate of vaccination. Yes. Uh, and then there's this uh, more troubling group um, of younger people who uh, kind of have a belief that um, they are healthy enough that it, it, it's not going to affect them, or if they get it, it's not going to cause them uh, too much problems anyways are we seeing that kind of same breakdown here 
yes. outside of ideology that we're, that that we still have higher rates above a certain age limit. Absolutely. If you look at uh, the the vaccine rates um, locally and within our region by age group, uh, you know it is it is much higher uh, among those who are over sixty. Um, and and I do think part of that is that you know in the the, the earlier stages of the pandemic, you know, those are the age groups that were most effective or the age groups that were most vulnerable. Uh, and what we've seen under Delta uh, here and, and other places that are starting to be affected by it is that uh, the average age of those hospitalized is dramatically lower than it was before. Uh, and a big part of that is the fact that those over 60, I think maybe had more of a sense of urgency about getting the vaccine based on prior experiences. They are highly vaccinated. Um, you know, in many cases, over 80% or 90% of individuals in that age group are vaccinated. They're not being affected as much by the, the Delta variant. Um, younger individuals um, who were not affected as much before are the ones who, who, who tend to be ending up in the hospital now. Um, and so I, I think for a lot of people in those younger age groups, it's not even so much um opposition to the vaccine it's maybe just a, a a sense that you know this is not as important for me as it is for others um which, which is not which is not really true now with with the delta variant i'm pretty sure the venn diagram between the people who listen to this podcast and people who are vaccinated is a circle but in the off chance that and i just want to do a shout out for jared and i in the off chance anybody listening to this is we'll call it vaccine curious not vaccinated yet Go back to our second episode. We had Vivian Elder on, Dr. Elder, and she talked specifically about what vaccines are and how they work. We really encourage you. Matt, last question for me, at least on this issue, because we've got a million more. But last question for me, people are very aware of national politics, state politics, local politics, maybe not so much. What can the city council do during a pandemic like this? How much can you guys move the needle? We... Um you know, there was a lot that we were able to do um, over the over the initial kind of year of the the pandemic. Um, you know, in in our state and in in, in many other states like ours, uh, many, those decisions tended to be left to a local level. Uh, and you know, again, that's something that none of us are on there because we anticipated a pandemic. You know, we are we're in unpaid volunteer positions because we care about the community and. Um, we have to be able to, we have to use expertise in situations like this because you can't be an expert on every possible circumstance uh, you can face. And we're fortunate to have many great local experts. So, you know, we have, we have the power to, um, you know, have the stay at home order, um, which we issued and, and approved um, early in, in, in the, early in the pandemic. And, and that was really based on, you know, that scientific guidance and being able to have time to figure out how do we best, uh, address this and how do we best protect people uh, and based on what we learned during those earlier experiences we were able to implement things like the uh, like the mask mandate and continue targeted occupancy restrictions uh, to be able to balance you know making sure that you know people were still able to get out and do things they need to do uh, while ensuring that they were doing so as safely as possible um, and you know that's something if we had known at the very beginning things that we know now uh, like the fact that masks work as a mitigation step you know the fact that certain settings and, and certain gatherings are 
more risky than than others. Um, you know, we could have just started with those, but nobody knew those at the time. You you can only know them by learning and by collecting the evidence and having experts do their research. And so, our approach kind of throughout was, you know, we're we're going to have to make the decisions for our, our region, and we're going to make them based on that expert guidance and based on the best science, understanding that that will evolve and our policy uh, evolves as well. Uh, we we don't have as much authority now. Um, you know, you had action taken at the the state level to pretty s- severely restrict um, in this past session what uh, local governments can do to respond to public health issues, uh, and so um, you know it. We are in a different situation now than we're we we were before, um, but we are still working, you know, very closely with the health department. That's a, that's a partnership between the city and the, and the county um, to try to make sure that we are supporting the best we can and still following those expert policy recommendations uh, to the extent that we're, we're able to. So I really, um, I, I listened or, or watched on YouTube um, the, the masking debates um, and a few other council sessions. Um, and I really appreciated um, your measured responses, your continued um, respectfulness uh, that you, that you still showed in the face of sometimes vitriol that was misdirected, um, and so as a, a, a research scientist, as someone that that uses data that's that's trained and and reflects on measured metrics, after those experiences, what did you learn? What did you take away from that? Um, because I, I like the fact that you were still positive when he asked you earlier, like, you know, well, uh, what, what's, what's your takeaway? Well, it's, you know, in, the, in that case, in terms of, of those very heated debates at times and that really challenging position, what did you take away from that? Um, that that's a great question. You know, I think it's, you know, it, it, it is not... Um, it's not easy to be in the position um, where you're kind of having vitriol or, or, or threats and we had, you know, threats at times... Um, um, regular throughout the throughout that kind of directed to this that's not something to get that that's easy to get used to um you know i i'm i've always been of the belief that um whatever our specific kind of political opinions um that you know we we share share common goals and and that if we can sit down and talk through them and look at the evidence we may still not agree on the path to get there but we're all trying to get to the same place um there were times throughout that debate where I don't know that we were all kind of trying to get to the same place and that, and that's a more difficult situation to deal with. And so I think what you still have to do throughout that is, um, is still make sure that you're treating everyone with respect, uh, still make sure that you're listening to what everyone says and, uh, and drawing out what's, what's constructive from it. Um, but you also can't, you know, you can't let threats or you can't let kind of the most, vitriolic um, rhetoric uh, drown out the actual evidence when you're still making the decision. So um, it, for, for me, it, you know, as much of a test as it was, it still reaffirmed to me the belief that it's important to listen to everyone. Uh, it's important to make, to make decisions based on the evidence and make decisions based on the, the best interests of the, of the community, uh, no matter what that means for, for me individually as a, as a person. So you talked about um, what kind of you, the work you do as chief research officer. Um, what does the governmental affairs officer side look like in your in your job? 
You know, a lot of it is kind of the the, the same um, sort of information sharing, just in with, with different audiences or external audiences. Um, you know, when we're uh, when we're working with um, you know the the state or the federal government on um, um, projects where we're we're seeking resources. You know, we we worked on the uh, the plaster. Um, Advanced Manufacturing uh, Center, for example, uh, you know, it's it's providing that information of, you know, here's the research we've done to show that there's the market demand for this, both regionally and across the state. You know, here are the specific kind of job pro- projections associated with the programs that uh, we're going to provide there. Um, you know, here is the return on investment uh, for students, for the community, for the state, uh, or for other uh, stakeholders that would be putting money into those um and, and into those projects, uh, and so it's it's making sure that uh, when when you have policymakers, you know, making decisions about OTC, that that they have the best possible information um, to to know what we do and know the value of what we do uh, when when they're making those decisions. Um, and and I think that you know that's one of the that's that's what I enjoy is is um, you know in my in my second unpaid volunteer job you know I, I do get to sit up and kind of make make decisions but I'm still taking the same approach of you know making it based on evidence and what I enjoy doing is kind of providing that information to people and letting them um, you know making sure that they're the ones making the decision but I can give them the evidence and answer their questions you gotta get more paid jobs Matt you keep <laughs> yeah. gravitating towards these unpaid volunteer jobs <laughs> yeah that's uh <laughs> the night then you know the nice thing is that you know we could uh, um, we could give ourselves a hundred percent raise and not affect the the budget and on the yeah. job. So um, that's right. You can set whatever percent percent level you want. Doesn't, doesn't matter as far as the actual amount. So uh, here's a real niche question for you. What is your favorite uh, representational diagram for analysis, and what's your favorite representational diagram for uh, 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 communicating information? That is a very, a very good but very niche question. Uh, I'll just be sitting over here while you two talk. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know, and this is probably kind of a cop out answer, but I, I don't think I have a, a a universal favorite because I think it every it depends on the the context of the data and it depends on the context of the question, um, and it depends on the audience as well. Uh, you know, I think that if you are building data visualizations. If I'm building data visualizations based on what I like or what most resonates with me, um, you know that that's a great kind of personal activity. It doesn't work so well once it leaves my desk, and if it doesn't leave my desk, then that's kind of a pointless activity. Uh, so, you know, I like to get to know um, you know the audience that that I'm working with, and and what is it that how can I present it in a way that that's most most useful uh, most useful to them, and that takes any number of different forms. Um, uh, you know, I I like a lot of the more kind of advanced visualiz- visualizations. I we do most of, I do most of my work in Power Microsoft Power BI, and and they're good about in their custom you know visualization store having a lot of the advanced stuff. You know, Sankey's and others, and um, I like to play around with those. But a lot of times, you know, the, the simple you know, pie graph or or bar graph or um, you know area graph. That tends to be what resonates with people the, the most, rather than trying to do something more more advanced. I find. I feel like you asked that question because you have an answer. What is I, your, I, I am curious on, on your, your answer. Boy. Uh, uh, for communicating <laughs> information, I really enjoy like pictographs. Yeah. Like more, um, you know, kind of narrative based, uh, uh, and those are really fun to build. Right. 
Um, for analysis, uh, you know, I'm I'm just I'm I'm old school physics, so I'm, I'm I think I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna have to go with uh, a line graph, right? That's really just yeah. two and three dimensional analysis. It just and then you know uh, uh, working with statistical analysis within that just tells you. Uh, so much information it's let's, very tried very tried and true uh, let's broaden our scope a little bit here with sure. the next question though uh, uh gumby versus mr ed battle to the death who wins a, a, a battle to the death between G gumby, gumby and mr and ed why yeah. that's the most important part it can gumby be harmed i mean i feel like he's i mean his his, his whole thing is that he is elastic and seems to be able to survive any number of of different things um I don't Sir, know you that he are would preaching be able to... to the choir here because I have had the same. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think he would be able to do anything to to Mister Ed besides tire him out. Uh, but I don't I don't feel like you know I don't feel like Gumby's gonna is possible. I don't feel like it's possible to defeat Gumby. So I guess by default I would I would choose Gumby as now, the Doctor Elder had thought of the Eddie Murphy Gumby. In which case I don't know maybe I give the edge to the horse in that circumstance. But yeah, I think the claymation Gumby that guy is indestructible. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so you, you are Gumby. I'm guessing you are, you are Mr. Ed. I, I'm oh, pretty no. sure Jared. I've never answered the question. Has never weighed in, He's, and I'm not going to. Yeah, that that takes away from my objectivity as the as the as the asker of the question, right? Uh, and, and like I said, I, to me, it's not about the answer. I love people's explanations of it, and I've I've asked that question for a decade now. Matt's question immediately was, "Well, can he be murdered?" Yeah, so <laughs> you know, and, and I really get to know people that yeah. way because you'll, you, 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 we've already heard four different people respond different, very right. differently, and Andrew argue with them, right? Like, yeah. It, 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 hey, yeah, if I'm going into fighting to death, I'm taking Mister Simpson <laughs> and his. Well, let's examine this. First of all, can we murder this person? The problem, the real problem, though, is is it's it's dated. So I, I need a. Yeah, we had we had Oganyemi on before you, and he's a young guy. He had no idea who either one of those characters were. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think either of those are probably. I've, I've thought about making Mr. Ed jokes on Twitter before, and, yeah. and I realized that, you know, probably, probably the audience is not just gonna, go Oh, for my it. goodness. My Lord of the Rings stuff doesn't work in classrooms anymore. Lord of the Rings. Lord yeah. of the Rings. And that was, I know, it was like turn of the century, but still, Lord of the Rings stuff wasn't. Uh, that, that for me, was kind of the turning point when I, when I made a Simpsons reference in <laughs> class one time, and the class didn't get it, and <laughs> I... Which is a shame because that is on now. That's it's a show on, now, on now. That's it, just them not knowing their pop culture. That's not on you, sir. Always I, respect a good joke and trust your audience yeah. to find it, right? Let them do the work. Yeah. <laughs> so, See, I, I like layering my puns to where maybe you've got a deeper level that the people who get the inside reference will appreciate, but then you've also got kind of a base level that even if even if you don't get the, the nested reference, at least there's something there for, for the general my audience. My favorite comics just take it until there's only one person in the back of the room <laughs> laughing yeah. that. I respect that. So, Andrew, uh, we brought our guest on today to talk about uh, uh, bring us back here. Yes. Uh, get us on track again. Well, I it, it's such a fortunate time for you and I to work at a community college because, again, community college is probably, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, I don't think it's, at least in my adult lifetime, has ever got the amount of oxygen that it's getting right now in public discourse. Um, before we get into anything else, Matt, let's walk through this together. Start us off, sir. What role we are not talking about OTC. We're talking about a, a community colleges in America. What role do community colleges play in America that, let's say, a regular college, uh, regular is the wrong word to use, 
state college, university? What would you four, say? Or four year. Yeah. There you go. Uh, or tra- tra- more traditional four years. Yeah, it's 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 a dual role, and and I think it's complement. You know, they're distinct but complementary. Um, and and that dual role is offering terminal degrees uh, in areas that require something less than a four year four year degree. Uh, and preparing students directly to go into quality employment, um, you know, and, and that has historically been a role that you know was not always served by community colleges, was, was served by maybe very specific trade schools or apprenticeship programs, uh, or you know similar kind of training programs that were outside of the traditional higher education higher education setting. Where community colleges kind of came in was combining that role with also the role of uh, accessible higher education. Uh, whether you're going that trade route or whether you're preparing to go to a four-year university because, you know, many people uh, under the traditional model were, were simply kind of priced out uh, of being able to pursue a bachelor's degree. And so even if the career you wanted to go into uh, was something that required an advanced degree, uh, that maybe wasn't an option for you. Um, and so community colleges, I think, at their core is it's that accessibility uh, focus uh, and then allowing students to, it's not just a, you know, not just a trade school, um, um, but it has those trades uh, and it has the paths uh, that uh, allow you to transfer on. Uh, and, and typically, you know, at, at OTC and at many other, what we find, and, and this is true of many others as well, you know, students that start at community college perform as well, if not better, uh, than students that started a four-year once they, once they transfer That's true, sir? Uh, that that is true for our. Uh, you know, we track our our graduates who go on to Missouri State and you know, students who start with us and get an, an associate's degree. If you follow them through to graduation at Missouri State in that you know four or six year time frame, uh, you know they they are graduating at rates that are they're equal to if not higher uh, than uh, than students that start uh, just start at Missouri State. So I am a uh, hypothetical student. I'm kind of kicking it around. Uh, OTC sounds fine. So I end up going to OTC. I'm really excited or I'm really nervous or whatever. But one thing I need to do is I need to get my finances in order. Now, what percentage, like we have a high percentage. I, I read this in an article recently. We have a high percentage of students that actually get grants to come here, right? They're not paying traditional tuition. What's the percentage? Do we know that? So it's it's typically about sixty percent of our students are receiving some form of, of financial aid mm-hmm. uh, that can be from uh, the federal government. Uh, the Pell is the largest source of financial aid for students. There's and some other the, federal programs. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is very important for this conversation. In a nutshell, what is a Pell grant? In a nutshell, so a Pell grant uh, is. Uh, uh, Based on your income level or your family's income level, if you're a dependent, um, you know, it's a determination made on, on FAFSA and your effect, expected family contribution, uh, and it's a sliding scale based on your expected family contribution of what you can get up to full Pell. Uh, and one of the, the 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 really nice things about Pell is that uh, you know it can cover tuition, uh, and full Pell certainly covers the full cost of tuition at OTC. Um, but if you're going to OTC, um, the full Pell amount is beyond what you're paying in tuition, and that still goes to the student. Uh, so it provides support not only for paying for the direct costs of attending college, but also paying for the cost that you incur just to someone who's is living well uh, while doing anything. Uh, and uh, so students are able to use um, some of that money for, for things like living expenses and uh, and textbooks and other costs that are associated with with, um, with attending college. So where is this drumbeat coming from? Uh, we are uh, uh, we are we currently have a president um, who is kicking around and seriously pushing the idea of tuition free community college. Is tuition as regards to community college, again, not OTC, just community colleges on a whole, 
Is it creating barriers or something? What is the problem with having a tuition? Uh, it, 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 it can create barriers. Uh, you know, you do have many of those programs like Pell, uh, like uh, in our state, we have A+, uh, that, um, that goes you know, beyond, um, uh, beyond certain income groups and allows anyone who meets certain criteria in high school uh, to get two free years, two tuition-free years of community college kind of similar concept to what we're talking about on the the federal scale. Uh, You know, the benefit there is, you know, for middle class families, uh, this may be one of the only um, uh, one of the only financial aid programs that they kind of have access to. Uh, And so it's a real benefit for for middle class students. I I think that, um, you know, to me, the 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 discussion is maybe it's, it's about barriers, but it's also about kind of expectations. So I think if you look at historical parallel, High school, uh, secondary school did not used to be part of the standard progression. Um, You know, up until really the the early to mid 20th century, uh, high school at the time was like post-secondary is now. Uh, It was something that some people chose to move on to, um, but it was not expected that, you know, you finish eighth grade, you're you're moving on. It was, I'm going to decide to go to high school or I'm going to go to work. Um, and it was a you know, major reform uh, to start investing in and building out public high schools and, and making that freely available as part of our uh, public, uh, public education system and encouraging att- attendance. Um, and I think it was kind of, I think it was in the 1950s when they finally kind of reached 80% uh, of school children across the country began attending uh, high school uh, based on those reforms. And it's gone up since then. Um, but it it it, it kind of moved the it moved the the ending barrier where education moved from being um, an expected to, to voluntary and choice that people made, uh, and you see now um, it varies from high school to high school. Um, but in in, in Missouri, uh, you still have a large percentage of students uh, who once they graduate from high school are not attending post secondary education. And some of that is financial barriers. Uh, some of that is you know, personal, our personal choices. Some of some of it are family expectations. There's a range of factors that um, that go into to, to those rates. Um, but you know, we we don't have we don't have that kind of high level uh, that high level of uh, post secondary attendance that you see in some states or you see in some other uh, some other countries. Uh, and so, to me, that this is this is maybe akin to that process with high schools back in the 20th century of do we want to adjust the expectations do we want to say that based on the needs of today's workforce that you know we still don't we recognize that not everybody needs a bachelor's degree or a graduate degree um, but everybody should probably have uh, at least a a certificate or an associate's degree uh, or some level of post-secondary training you know it's interesting you mentioned that well obviously probably the number one candidate that's talking about making all college free would be bernie sanders ran for president a couple times didn't work out for him Uh, but he in that push which whatever your opinion on that so be it but he did make an interesting point he did say that according to and you would speak to this directly according to some analysis a college degree or I guess I should say a high school degree a couple generations back is now the equivalent of a college degree now. Have you seen similar research? Yeah. If you look at the gap, uh, the the gap in earnings between those with just a high school degree and those with at least some college, um, that gap has, has grown uh, and and has changed uh, from what it was before. You know, it, it is 
there is more of the expectation of you are going to have a credential uh, for these jobs that are the the, the most well-paying jobs and um, and and tend to provide them the best benefits as well. It seems to me that there's an interesting argument too to be said for you know this being about two-year programs and and you talked about access and so it's not uh, uh, you know uh, strictly a, a four-year liberal arts education. It's access to uh, job training to uh, tech degrees to trade um, the kind of things that you know is scaling up from what we might have seen after the industrial revolution where there was more of a um, apprenticeship model right, right. and so uh, it's not just about uh, we need more philosophy professors right it's it's about um, not only access for for people and and, and their advancements of their families but a need that the country has for uh, certain positions to be filled with, with well-trained individuals. Exactly, and I think manufacturing is a great industry example of that. You know, the uh, we still, I think, have, have stereotypes about what manufacturing plants look like as, as a workplace. And um, but if you go into you know manufacturing settings. Uh, there's a lot of technology involved. Um, you know, oftentimes there's some programming involved. Um, uh, there's certainly networking between the the machines that you're working with, uh, and so it, it it does require um, it does require those those skills to be able to work in a manufacturing setting. And so when you have when you have jobs that um, that you know, maybe previously could have been done with a high school high school diploma um, that are moved now to where you require that level of, of skills and training prior to prior to getting the job. That's where kind of the needle shifts as far as that uh, starting salary, and that's where the the income gap builds between high school graduates and those with some some college and the ability to access those technical training programs. Uh, cards on the table. Uh, our bias clearly is that people need to get a post secondary degree. At least that's my bias. But the, you and I went to a conference in uh, San Antonio maybe a couple years back, and they brought up an anecdote. One of these old arguments made against against college since time immemorial. It was like I don't know why you need to waste a couple years. You can trot right into a welding degree straight out of high school. I'm sorry, welding welding career straight out of high school, and you're good to go. That's not applicable. You got to get that welding certificate now, which of course OTC. Right is is baller in like we're, we're that's one of our best programs here. Right, yeah, exactly. That that is another great example, and and that's also a great example of how you know colleges need to adjust to to, um, to the students that we're serving because you know that is something that you know, students that are going into those welding careers they they tend to want to get right into the careers. I would want to get right looking at the salaries that welding welders make. I'd want to as well, uh, and so the fact that you know we've developed the you know twenty week welding program where it's condensed, you can complete your certificate, get your industry recognized credential and licensure uh, within that twenty week period, and then you're able to to go to work. You know we have to also be flexible in recognizing that you know just as, as students may be coming with um, uh, different interests as far as what gets them to their career, uh, they also may be coming with different time frame expectations, uh, and that we. Have have to be flexible to recognize that you know, you know some of the, for some of them it's two years for some of them it's 20 weeks uh, and how can we best deliver them the training they need within the time frame that works for them great time hanging out in san antonio with matt anyways because matt is the expert at oh we got uh 45 minutes to kill matt's like hold on starts fiddling around on his phone and he was like here's this 
restaurant we go to. It's like right next to the river. The food's fantastic. We have mariachi bands coming up offering us music. And uh, Matt is the uh, perfect person to hang out with. If you've got 45 minutes, I'm sure you're great for extended periods of time. <laughs> but if, we're, if you've got 45 minutes to burn, find Matt. He's doing something pretty great. That's why they have the great river walk too. Yes. Right? yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to gloss over your fantastic advertising pitch there that our OTC welding program were baller. I yes, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. I, who, who, I, I need to get in touch with uh, Sarah Bargo. Sure. I will be the face of the uh, baller campaign for our welding program. Just you with <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when we talk about tuition, uh, one thing I did not even think about until uh, uh, Jared and I were actually fortunate enough to have a uh, sit down not that long ago with uh, Dr. Higdon, which maybe we should bring him on one of these days. But he had mentioned something I hadn't figured was that different community colleges have different dependence on tuitions. Like here in, in, in OTC, relatively low dependence compared to other community colleges, right? Uh, so as far as our, as far like as like our percentage, like we get a ton of local taxation. Um, we get some state, some federal. And as a result, the tuition we depend on, like some colleges, like eighty percent of their income is. Tuition. No, our, our our tuition our tuition dependence is actually the higher end. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, we so community colleges really should be kind of a, a three tiered stool. It should yeah, be sure. about a third local, a third state, uh, a third from from tuition. Um, you know, we have at OTC the the lowest level of state funding per student of any college uh, in Missouri, uh, college or university in Missouri, um, and we also have um, the the lowest. Um, tax lobby um, of any college in Missouri. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we depend, it's, it's, it varies as far as the specific number, but it's typically, you know, between 65 and 70% uh, of our operating revenues coming from tuition. So we okay. are, we are uh, more dependent on, uh, on, on tuition than any others. I'd like to remind listeners that mine and Andrew comments are our own and not representational <laughs> of OTC. That's right. Correct. And on top of that, if I am the federal government pushing a tuition-free program, do I knock on OTC's door, I say, how much tuition do you guys bring in, and I just give the school the money so that they don't need to charge tuition from... Like, how does it work? You know the politics better than we do. How would it? How would this program work? And I know there are actually several different plans. I would encourage you to stay away from the plans that have no chance. What's the mainstream plan here? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the, the most mainstream plan uh, is something that, that, that ties the money to individual students uh, rather than kind of group allocations to, to institutions, um, you know, because there is so much variance in, you know, how many students you may get from year to year. There's variance in, in, in the level to which each individual student is attending. Um, you know, you have, um, you have some community colleges where the, the majority of their students are full-time. You have some where the majority are part-time. You have some where it shifts. You know, it moves around with OTC depending on uh, what's going on with the, the economy and the job market around us. Uh, and so it would be hard, I think, to have institutional allocations that would that would work. Uh, so I think most of the plans that I've seen and the plans that you've seen succeed at the state level, um, like the A-plus program, um, are, are ones where, you know, you have uh, amounts tied to the student that are dependent on the uh, institutional tuition, um, but they have a cap usually. So you can't, you know, we, we can't say, well, you know, you're, uh, you're coming in on the tuition program, we're going to charge you twice. Wouldn't be ethical, wouldn't be, wouldn't be fair, and program would break down pretty quickly if, if, uh, if you did that. I'm not entirely sure how much I understand the cap. Are you suggesting that even under this universal tuition plan, you could still have to pay tuition if you exceed the cap? 
if you're attending an institution that exceeds the cap. Now, the, the thing oh, okay. is, is that normally if you set that cap, like in, in Missouri, um, the A-plus cap is based on the tuition rate charged by uh, State Tech. Uh, State Tech College, which which has the highest uh, tuition rate among the kind of two year sector, uh, and so um, you know, an institution could choose to raise their tuition above that cap, uh, but realistically, they're not going to do so because you know then you would have A plus students who would come and find that the A plus is not going to cover their full cost of tuition. That's not meeting the A plus promise to them. It's not really a responsible decision on the part of the institution, uh, and so in practice, if you set a cap, institutions will will follow it. Um, that's more difficult to do on a national level. That's one of the things, you know, that's one of the reasons you see a lot of people argue kind of for the state. Why is that? Why is it more difficult? Because there is a lot of variance, a lot more variance um, in, in what uh, institutions charge. There's a lot more variance in cost of living and, and other operating costs that are determined by your kind of surrounding community. Uh, and so, you know, setting a setting a cap, uh, a tuition cap that works for an institution in New York City and works for an institution in the Ozarks um, is, 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 is a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, if you set it based on the New York rate, that's much higher uh, than, than, than we charge. Um, and if you set it based on our rate, then, then you know, places in New York City and others like that are going to be priced out of being able to, uh, to participate. So in this extended A-plus model, are there performance requirements for the students, and is there a certain number of courses that can be taken per semester? If uh, it, you know, Many of them do have those, uh, th- those requirements, and, and, and that's, um, you know, th- there's a balance there, I think, between um, you know, wanting to make sure if, if we're putting money uh, into this, we want to make sure that there's some um, kind of accountability uh, on the part of the student receiving the money. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, programs are built with those accountability layers where maybe the intent of the program was to provide access, but we've layered on so much on, on the part of the student that we kind of take away the benefits of the access. And so, you know, I, you know, I would say as we're looking at these things, a lot of times you're, you're trying to strike a balance between that. We want to make sure that the, the, the money is being well used while not overly burdening the student and, 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 and making it so it doesn't help them benefit. The student should be taking an exam or taking a class or reading a chapter thinking, I really want to absorb this information so I can be the best me I can be. Right. Not, oh my goodness, if I screw this up, I'm going to lose my funding. Right. right. And, and, and one of the other things there is that you know, a lot of the, the metrics that we look at and higher education are based on the traditional four-year model. You know, the, the gold standard uh, by which a lot of these programs are evaluated is the IPEDS 150% of normal time graduation rate, which says, all right, so you start, um, you start in a fall semester as a, as a first-time, full-time degree-seeking student. Uh, we're going to follow you at 150, 150% of the time it, we should, we'd expect you to take to complete your degree. Do you graduate? Um, and then for community colleges, we're also allowed to report, do you transfer on um, and then count that as a success in the completion rate. But if we're talking about like some of these programs that are preparing students with skills for employment, um, you know, maybe you take a, a class in welding uh, and you get the skills from that class to get a job. Uh, so I complete my class. I go out. I get a job. I get the job I want. I'm making good money. Um, but on a graduation rate metric, um, I'm counted as a failure because I didn't graduate. Uh, and so 
you know, that that's, I think, also one of the limitations of some of those accountability um, measures that we use is that they're they're based on the, the four-year models and they're, they're based on something that works well for a traditional university uh, but doesn't work as well for a community college where the majority of our students don't come in through that traditional first-time full-time entry point uh, and so they they're not even counted in the metric to begin with and then a lot of the successful outcomes that we can get students to in terms of employment are not counted as successful outcomes on the other end uh, so um, yeah, that's something else that I think it's important to keep in mind when designing these metrics, especially for, you know, free community college is making sure they are tailored uh, to the goals of students who are attending community college and not the goals of students that, you know, are attending, were attending Harvard in the 1930s. You know, we, again, uh, Jared and I were very fortunate to have a sit down with Dr. Higdon uh, where this issue came up. And he said that tuition-free community college, and I'm directly quoting here, could be the best thing for community colleges in America, and it can be the worst thing for community colleges in America, depending on the specifics. Do you concur? Do you, do you come somewhere down in that spectrum? It's the entire spectrum. So do you come down somewhere in that spectrum? That's the entire, well, I, I think you would have to come down somewhere in the, within the entire spectrum. But yeah, I concur. I think that it's something that, um, you know, it's... Um, Obviously, with the, with the bias we've acknowledged, we think people should attend post-secondary institutions. Um, you know, there's a lot of value in setting that expectation. Uh, but as far as how that is actually implemented, uh, there are a lot of um, a lot of road mines in the in the implementation, I think, in the potential implementation. So, um, you know, it it is something that I think he said it well could be the best thing ever for us it could be the worst thing ever for us in terms of the impact on us all depending on on how something like that that would be structured and implemented is is there any way to make peace with four-year colleges if something like this happens there's always this kind of uneasy alliance between community colleges and the four-year institutions because if we become tuition free at community colleges specifically then that i mean Four-year colleges, those first couple of years, are they're loading up students on liberal arts. I mean, a lot of students are going to start coming to community colleges instead and then transferring later. Uh, is there any way to kind of square that circle so that four-year institutions aren't <laughs> robbed of their – robbed is the wrong word, but all of a sudden they don't have the student body that they used to have for those first two years? Uh, I think it's um... – I think it's possible. I mean, I think we've seen that in, in Missouri with a with the A plus program. Um, you know, other states that have since implemented it, like uh, Tennessee with their Tennessee Promise program. Um, you know, I, I think that they still have good working relationships between their colleges and universities, and you haven't seen you know the universities fall off the map in terms of enrollment. Um, you know, I, I think that the the doing it on a national level, and if it if it did kind of accomplish that shift of you know, it's not really K twelve anymore. It's it's K K fourteen. Um, you know, I, I think that that certainly presents new new challenges in terms of the relationships between colleges and, and universities. But they are not challenges. I think that that couldn't be overcome. Um, you know, uh, where do I want to go with that? Uh, well, so let me just ask you that. You have studied a ton of student behavior at OTC. So your best projection. Uh, if we issue some sort of tuition-free community college plan, and just for full disclosure, just for full education purposes for anybody that's listening and is unfamiliar with the plans in front of Congress right now, almost all of them include an expansion of Pell, a Pell that is more generous and also the amount of time. What is the current time? Two years, four years? How long do you have Pell access? Uh, it's um, it's 
again, it depends on kind of the student's circumstances, but um, you know, typically it's about that to come two to three year period. So if we enact any of these mainstream plans that we've kind of been banding about, should we expect a tidal wave of new community college students? Will our student body expand dramatically? I think that the the hope would be that you would see expansion, and, and this goes back to the college and university relationship point, that you would see expansion out of the students from high school that are not currently attending uh, attending college, uh, and, and not so much a shift from students that were previously attending universities to college, but a true new addition of students to the, uh, to the higher ed world. Um, and if you look at what's happened in states that have implemented these sorts of programs, you, you have seen that sort of significant increase uh, in post-secondary attendance. Um, one thing that kind of balances that out, though, for us and, and for many states right now, if you look at population trends, uh, is that the number of traditional graduates uh, is... Um, is low in many areas right now and is, is going to probably continue to get lower. Uh, and so we may get a higher share of graduates attending based on this, but that may still translate into a lower number of students based on the fact there are just not as many students leaving high school. Um, and so the other component of this and something that I think would need to be included for, for this plan to be successful is that um, there are a lot of uh, adults uh, who are maybe out of high school for, for a couple of years or more, uh, who are underemployed or unemployed, more often underemployed kind of now and uh, would like to, to, to get better jobs, who could benefit from um, you know, getting a, a trades degree or, or from getting an associate's degree that, that leads them to a four-year. Uh, and I think a successful program uh, has to um, have a path for those individuals as well and has to promote to those individuals as well. That is where you could see the tidal swell of, uh, of enrollment. You know, if you look at um, OTC, for example, um, you know, we, we've tended to be pretty steady over the past several years when you've seen huge declines for a variety of reasons in the community college sector. Uh, but if you look at our enroll, enrollment back to 2011 when we were kind of at our peak uh, during the, 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 the recession at the time um, we are down about 4,000 students uh, in the over 25 age group uh, that was we were in that point we have made up for a lot of that uh, on getting a higher percent of high school graduates enrolling with us um, but you know that's that's a finite number that we're working with and so you can only increase kind of so much with, with the higher yield rates uh, and if we you know if we tomorrow um, had those you know 4,000 students that were with us during the, the height of the recession and the adult population come back. Uh, and I think that something near that could be a realistic number if, if you have a program that is promoted to uh, pro promoted to adults. You know, that overnight would be uh, almost, a, almost a 40% kind of increase for us. Now, that's probably not sustainable to do overnight, uh, but that would be where you could see those dramatic increases. So let's just take a moment to appreciate um what we are doing for a living matt your one job you're actually getting paid for we are all working uh at a community college there is um the, there was the i don't know the exact wording of the american dream but it's like you can start anywhere and if you work hard and play by the rules you'll you can do better for yourself than you started off and the next generation after you can build from that that's the american dream and what we've learned over and over again, and you would actually know figures behind this, maybe, I don't want to put you on the spot, is that 
the ladder you need is education. And nowadays, as we've talked about before, it's increasingly becoming post-secondary education. Right. And so we all play a role in that. And so this offers intriguing promise. If it's done right, you know, cutting back to Dr. Higdon's remarks, if it's done right, if it's executed properly. Um, but is that your understanding as well? Is that the best ladder yes. is education, specifically post-secondary education? It, it absolutely is. And we can put that into you know, monetary terms for, um, for students. We did uh, work with the national firm to do an economic impact study, um, you know, that, that so that for every dollar in their time and their money and, and all the opportunity costs lost by attending, you know, students are getting back about, um, you know, $6, uh, which is huge return on investment. Uh, and then you have the lifetime of earnings kind of past that. So there's the, the monetary return on investment. But, you know, to me that what drives home the impact the most is that when you look at, you know, graduation ceremonies for programs like nursing uh, and you see individuals there with their family uh, for whom, you know, they are the statistically, this is true for a lot of our students. They're the first person in their family to graduate from college. Uh, they're likely the first person in their family to get a, a job with benefits that is, is well-paying. Uh, and you see that family and you see no, not only the economic impact it has on that individual graduate, but the lasting impact that's going to have on their, on their kids uh, and their kids and, and down the line uh, and for our community in general. Um, that is the best ladder. Uh, and, um, and the more people we can uh, help onto that first rung of the ladder, the, uh, the better we're all going to be. And specifically, uh, I'm an advocate for community college and for OTC. I'm actually a, a product of it. It really is transformational. I uh, am a first, was a first-generation college student. Um, I was born in Cox North. Uh, I'm from this area. Uh, OTC gave me access to an undergraduate degree at a four-year university. Then it gave me access to graduate school. Um, and and while I'm back here and such an advocate for it, is uh, I've I've seen that right. I've seen that return, um, not only in a monetary investment, but uh, in, in just access to to the world, to a worldview, uh, and to the ability to um, pass on um, th those opportunities. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's not just being an advocate for higher education, um, but being an advocate for local community. Um, and I think that's one of the perks or uh, one of the one of the things that community college really offers to four year universities rather than threaten them is to provide more access to people within their own community who stay in their community. Thank you for saying that's such so well said, Jared, and Matt as well. Uh, we're not advocating, you know, clearly the bias of the people, at least you and I, the bias is get as many students <laughs> to college and specifically community college as possible, not just because it's good to have them around, although clearly we love having them around. Most importantly, as you said, it's access to make their community a better place. Yeah. Well, um, we cannot thank you enough. I, uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, uh, everything from a kind of um, a, a up-close look at what's happening currently in our region as it pertains to COVID, um, a little bit better understanding of how politics in uh, Springfield function, um, a ton of information about the possibilities of, of uh, expanding um, access to higher education, uh, and, and frankly, uh, I don't know about you, Andrew. I, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Now you do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much.
Thank you.